Now to bless our time together, that you would encourage us through your word, that you would instruct us, that you would illumine our darkness as it would, would, would be, and that you would give us understanding, and uh, that you would encourage us as we take a look at how we're to think through trials and your purposes in them, and how we might find encouragement through your word, and, and know that your ultimate end of all that you do in our lives really is to conform us to the image of your Son, to increase our hope in the reality of all of the promises that have been given to us in Him and are true in Him. And so, to that end, we pray and uh, commit this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, well, uh, as you know, we finished up last week with the unity, looking at body life and this kind of this series that we're doing. Uh, Today, I want to take a moment to look at, or just actually, we're going to do it in one message, and, and a rather short message, since we have a couple extra things uh, to do, uh, at the matter of trials, a biblical perspective of trials. And then next week, uh, and the following week, we'll have uh, Pastor Bigelow, uh, will be uh, teaching us about spirit baptism, I believe, uh, because we'll be having a baptism next week, and then uh, bringing us a message on Christmas. And uh, while we love to hear, uh, I do, and I know everyone else does, uh, Pastor Bigelow uh, bring us the word, we also only have them for a little while longer. And so they will be leaving at the end of the month, um, so we want to have him minister to us the word of God as much as we can. Uh, but until then, uh, let us look this morning at the issue of trials, the issue of trials, uh, and, and how we can think about that more, them more biblically. I think to begin our thoughts, I would remind you of a phrase of, from Job 5-7, and he says this, that man is, was born for trouble as the sparks fly upwards. You all remember that phrase, right? Man was born for trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Now that phrase could actually mean a couple of different things, or there could be a couple of different things that Job is emphasizing there. One, he could be emphasizing there that because of our sin, because of the reality of our natural birth into sin and the... And the sinful acts that we do because of a sinful nature that we bear the consequences of it in this world. It's inevitable that we're going to sin and that we're going to bear the consequences of sin in our life. And this is from Eliphaz, one of Job's uh, friends and one of his terrible counselors. It could also just mean that we live in a fallen world and there are forces against us and there are natural calamities that come about in this world and we can't escape them. It's an inevitable result of living in a fallen world. So he could be emphasizing either one of those, but whichever way understands it, both are really true. Human sin and our own sin and the sin of others and the sin of this fallen world guarantees that we will experience trouble in this world. And as well, the reality of sin and the devil and the world assures us that we have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion lion seeking to devour us. So that is a true statement uh, It's some measure that Eliphaz gave there to Job in Job 5.7. But what this statement does not capture and what was actually hidden from Job and his friends was not merely the fact that there are difficulties in this world and certainly Job was experiencing those in a unique way. But rather that the events of Job's life and really all of the evils that befell him, the loss of his children, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health, a grumbling wife who was decidedly unhelpful, and friends who were anything but an encouragement to him, were in fact not simply the consequence of living in a fallen world, though it was not less than that, but in fact they were a part of the design of God to reveal himself through Job and to Job. In other words, to increase Job's faith and to glorify himself, that is, for God to glorify himself through the life of Job. So while the devil plays a role, our evil adversaries play a role, our own personal sin plays a role in all of the difficulties that we have in life, there is a larger role that God plays as the sovereign over all things, the father of his children. Particularly, I'm speaking here of his covenant children. And it is his design then that through trials and difficulties, he would accomplish his work most perfectly and exquisitely in us. So the ultimate cause of trials then is God himself. The ultimate cause of difficulties, disappointments, discouragements, 
injustices and so forth that we experience in life is God accomplishing his work in us. That's the ultimate purpose and the ultimate cause. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. He's glorifying his name in us through the things that we experience. Now this morning I want to just briefly consider this uh, topic and how we're to think about trials. How we're to think about all of those things that God brings into our life that again are disappointments to us, that are discouragements to us, that cause us to fear, that cause us to be downtrodden and depressed. How are we to think about these things? How are we to respond to them? How are we to understand God's purposes in them? Now, this is by no mean an exhaustive list, the things that I'll cover this morning. It's really just a very general framework, a way to give us a very general framework of how we are to think about these things in our life, how we're to think about them biblically, how we're to think about them in a way that God's ultimate purpose of increasing our joy and our knowledge of Him will actually be accomplished in our lives, rather than us just walking around uh, depressed and discouraged that life is not going our way. Now, I'm going to cover a few different examples, and I imagine that everyone will find themselves in one of them this morning, or this season of life, and all of us, at some point, are going to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a trial, something that's going to seem threatening uh, to us. We will all have those seasons of life. If we're not in it now, we will be. As a matter of fact, First Peter says, as you're well familiar, that it is necessary that we encounter various trials in this world. It's necessary. 1 Peter 1.6, it's part of living this side of heaven. They're necessary because of, again, the reality of remaining indwelling sin in God's people. So God needs them. He needs these things to wean us from this world, to wean us from our love to sin, to increase our faith and our knowledge of Him. In fact, even beyond that, the Son of God Himself, though sinless, though perfect in every way, though the righteous one, was not immune from trials, was not immune from difficulties in life as God's design, even as the perfect son in flesh, to teach him obedience, to make him all that would, would make him, or to make in him and produce in him everything that would help him to be and cause him to be our perfect savior. Matter of fact, Isaiah said he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And what was the greatest trial he experienced? Right? The, the cross. Right? He experienced trials throughout his life, but the greatest would be the trial that he would experience on our behalf. The sin, bearing the sin of his people on the cross, suffering there for us and in our place, that we could, he could remove the sting of its power. So, Ultimately, then, every trial then is, again, designed really to unfold for us the glories of Christ, unfold for us the glories of grace and the glories of the cross. That, that is ultimately the end of it all. Now, let me begin, however, by just briefly defining the idea of a trial, the idea of a trial. Now, it comes, you might know, from a Greek word that's translated several different ways throughout the New Testament. This word is sometimes translated as trial, it's sometimes translated as temptation, and it's sometimes translated as test. It's the same word. The context really decides how the term is translated. For example, in James 1.3, it is translated trial. The trials that we are to consider joy as we experience them in this life. The same term later in verse 13 is translated as temptation. Temptation, referring to what we experience because of evil lust within us as we consider and contemplate sin. Again, it could be translated as testing, as God was testing uh, Jesus in the wilderness to prove his righteousness. But at the same time, that same experience is the temptation of the evil one because he was trying to get Jesus to, in fact, be unrighteous and to not trust his father. Jesus thanks his disciples in Luke twenty two twenty eight for standing with him through all of his trials. In other words, throughout their three, uh, traveling with him for three years in his ministry, they experienced all of the difficulties, all of the heartaches, 
all of the sorrow, all of the rejection that he himself experienced, and they stood with him in his trials. And yet that same term is just a little while later in the same chapter is referred to as temptation when he tells them that they may not enter into temptation to pray, that they would not enter into temptation at the coming of his betrayal and therefore leave him in fear and in discouragement. Of course, they failed to do that and they, in fact, did fall to that temptation. Again, just another example. In John 6, 6, Jesus told Philip that he was to feed the multitude or find food for the multitude. And yet John tells us that Jesus said this to test him. He was testing him, same term there, in order to strengthen his faith. And yet a little bit later in John, the Jewish leaders, the same term, were testing Jesus with questions so that they might have grounds to accuse him. So in other words, the idea is here that the context determines how that term is understood, whether it's a testing, whether it's a temptation, or whether it's a trial. Indeed, and all of these things are really ultimately designed by God to reveal our heart and to show us how to and teach us to trust Him. But let me just, for a working definition, describe a trial in this way, as I'll be using it. The, The basic idea of a trial... And again, in the sense I'll be using it is this, is any difficult situation, challenge, struggle, disappointment, and suffering the Lord brings into our life. For whatever reason, any difficulty, any challenge, any struggle, any disappointment, and any suffering the Lord brings into your life to humble, prove, or discipline us. I think, Ted, when you went through James 1.3, I like the way that you said that anything that threatens us, Anything that poses itself to us as a threat, a threat to our joy, a threat to our security, a threat to our well-being, these things then are a trial. They are a trial. Now, there's a variety of reasons that God could bring trials or does bring trials into our life. Sometimes we experience those things, this kind of suffering and difficulties, as a direct result of our sin. In other words, then it's discipline of the Lord. We sin and there's a sowing and reaping consequence that he has built into this life and therefore we suffer the result of that. There's many examples of it. One that we're probably most familiar with is 1 Corinthians 11. We talk about it each time that we take the Lord's Supper as we will this morning. He says, for this reason, some of you are sick. Some of you have even fallen asleep. The Lord has taken the life of some of his own children because of their sin, a direct consequence of their sin. You can think of the example of David after he sinned with Bathsheba and with, against Uriah that there were many troubles that came into his life. The kingdom was split apart or the kingdom, or the kingdom experienced great many troubles through his family problems. Absalom eventually even going in Jerusalem and removing David from his throne and causing him to leave Jerusalem in shame with a small band of his faithful followers. And throughout the rest of his life, he experienced consequences and troubles and difficulties that came from that sin. And sometimes uh, we experience that in our lives as well. There are other times where these kind of trials and suffering and difficulties come as a direct consequence not of sin, but of righteousness. In other words... 1 Peter 4 tells us that sometimes we might lose friends, we might be ostracized, we might lose that comfort of of relationships that we had in the past because of righteousness, because we don't want to follow the same sinful course that we did before salvation. Sometimes we'll suffer unjust accusations. Could be even something as extreme as prison, who Paul, remember, he said in Ephesians 4, 1, he was a prisoner of the Lord. He certainly understood that. Sometimes it will be physical suffering, again, that we see all in the, throughout Scripture in the life of God's children. And sometimes it's not because of a direct act or consequence of our righteousness or sometimes a direct consequence of sin. It's just that general humbling providence that God exercises in our life to humble and mold us. So when we come to a trial, how then are we to think of them? How are we to understand what God's purpose is in them? What are, what are some of the purposes that God lays out for us in his word that, that help us get a grip or to think through the things that we're going through? And that's what I want to respend, uh, spend just the remaining few minutes on. And, and we're not going to take a lot of time. We do want to give time for the Lord's Supper and for uh, recognizing our new members. But let me mention to you just a few. Let me just mention to you a few. One, and this is probably one that we're most familiar with, is to humble 
and test our hearts. Humble and test our hearts. This is why God brings trials into our lives. Let me just point you to one text that brings these two things together. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now in Deuteronomy, you remember these are the last words of Moses to the nation of Israel. He who had been their leader throughout their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness was now soon to die. These are his last words to the nation, the second generation that would soon enter into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the land that God had promised them. It comes at the end of 40 years of their wandering about in the wilderness in little more than doing circles for 40 years that was a direct consequence of their sin of distrusting and rebelling against God when he had brought them the first time up to the edge of the land of Canaan to give it to them, but they responded in unbelief and rebellion. And so the consequence for that generation was that they would wonder for 40 years. And now the second generation has arisen. They're soon to enter into the land. And Moses is establishing for them a reminder about the purpose of why they have as a nation experienced what they had for the last 40 years. So he says, and really I'll begin in verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And he says in verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. And he let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And then he reminds them of God's faithful care in the midst of this humbling. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And so everything that they experienced, Moses wraps up into this one purpose or these two purposes of God. To humble you and in that humbling to test you and to test your heart. And of course to discipline as well. Let's consider the first. It was to humble them. It was to humble them. One of the great indicators or realities of our sin, the natural expressions of our sin as fallen creatures is independence. This idea of independence from God. We want to live free of the restraints that God places on our life. Free of the restraints of His commandments. Free of the restraints of His providences in our life. We want to live completely independent from Him. That was at the heart of, a part of the rebellion even in the garden. To live independently from God. To go and trail our own way. To rely on our own wisdom. Our own intuition. uh, To achieve our own results. And so independence is really at the heart of... The desire for independence is at the heart of, of sin. It's the desire to say that I can make this. I did this. I have the right to be glorified in it. To use it for my pleasure as I see fit. As a matter of fact... Later in the chapter, uh, Moses is going to address that same, or Deuteronomy addresses that same temptation to pride and the fact that they will succumb to later. He says in verse 14, after they've experienced all the good things that God will give, then you'll say in your heart, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You'll forget in verse 16 that he was there humbling you, testing you to do good to you. And instead, you'll say in verse uh, 17, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. In other words, the, the the tendency always is toward pride in our heart, independence, self sufficiency, self will, our own glory. And so God brings difficult circumstances, He brings times of want, He brings times of lack into our life, as He does here with. The nation of Israel to remind us that it's not by our strength, it's not by our might, it's not by our wisdom, it's not by our power, it's not by our scheming, it's not by our abilities, it's not by our intellect, 
It's not by anything that we have what we have in life. It comes from the good and the gracious hand of God. And we are to be humbled by that and to live with a sense of dependency. And, but trials are necessary, really kind of sadly, uh, in order to accomplish that in our life, even as it did here. In fact, these trials, these times of want, these times of needing, these times of living day to day and hand in mouth are a blessing, really, because they remind us and they indicate to us and they restore in us and revive in us the reality that we live on God and God alone. He needs to constantly confront this attitude in our hearts. And so he brings us through these times of want to make us realize we're not as strong as we think that we are. Some of you know that better than others. Some of us know that more than others, and some know it more than we do. We certainly are not the poorest of the land, and we're not the wealthiest of the land. And we all have those seasons in our lives, no doubt, that we can look back and remember where we didn't know where how we were going to pay the next bill, how, where we had to go to the grocery store and didn't buy everything we wanted, but actually had to keep things on the shelf because we couldn't afford it. Lived in a certain anxiety that we didn't know how we would get the car fixed if it broke down. How we were going to pay the rent the next month. How we were going to keep the heat on during the winter. These are all things that many of us have experienced. Us just in general as humanity. And as a Christian then, how are we to view those things? It could be grumbling and complaining. Why hasn't God forgotten me? But God has always cared for his people. There's never been one of his own who's begging for bread. Have you ever been without heat? Have you ever been without food to sustain you? Have you ever been left out into the cold? No. Just as he had to remind Israel, yes, you lived day to day. Yes, you lived on the manna, but your shoes never wore out. Your feet never swelled. No, this, this was to humble you, to remind you that you are to... Pray to God, give us this day our daily bread, that you are to depend on him day by day, never looking beyond the provisions that he has given to us, thinking that by our own strength we will survive. But, but really, in, in all of that, the main idea here of what Moses is getting at is the idea that trials are to test us. They're to test us. They're to humble us. But in that humbling, our hearts are tested. Our hearts are tested. In other words, these difficult circumstances reveal the hidden qualities and realities of our own hearts. So he said to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. What was in your heart? You know, if you want to know what's in your heart, our our hearts can be, even as believers, our hearts can be deceitful. Our hearts can be self-justifying, self-rationalizing. We can cover over a multitude of things in our hearts. So how do we really know what's going on in our hearts? How do we really know about the reality of spiritual life in us? How do we know where we are on the spiritual maturity test? How do we really know? Well, I would suggest that we can't really know that in times of ease. In fact, in, in times of ease, in some ways, actually become more of a trial and more of a test of where we are. What do we do with our luxury? What do we do with our wealth? What do we do with our free time? That in in many ways, even as here with Israel, becomes a greater test. But let's consider this in times of the trial of difficulty. The trial of difficulty. How do you know what's in your heart? Well, you know by how you react to trials. You know, do you notice, I I know that we all do, that one of the refrains, you, you already know where this is coming, when we see like famous people or politicians that get caught in some kind of sinful activity, and what do they say all the time? You know, what do you, that's not who I am, right? That's not who I, that, that's, that's a heartbreaking statement. Doesn't that break your heart to hear that? Because you're like, God has exposed you so that you would see who you are, so that you would come to repentance. And in fact, they go in just exactly the opposite direction. It's actually sad to read that. That's not who I am. Well, no, the answer is that is who you are. And you'll never know grace until you accept that reality about yourself. 
The same holds true for us, though, even as believers. We can think quite highly of ourselves until God brings the right set of circumstances into our life to show us who we really are. And we should never, in our sinful responses, justify ourselves by thinking, well, that's not who I really am, I just messed up. No, the answer is that's, that is who we are. That's why we need grace. As a matter of fact, an old commentator, he's actually in this, in this statement commenting on 1 Peter 1, 6. I'll just read it to you then. It fits this point. He says, a man is not only known to others, but not, excuse me, a man is not only unknown to others, but to himself that has never met with such difficulties as require faith and Christian fortitude and patience to surmount them. How shall a man know whether his meekness and calmness of spirit be real or not, while he meets with no provocation, nothing that contradicts or crosses him? Whereas standing in water which is clear at the top while it is untouched, yet if it have mud at the bottom, stir it a little and it rises presently. In other words, everything can look clear, everything can look just fine until circumstances are stirred up enough that what's really at the bottom of that water rises to the top and pollutes everything. An illustration of that that I heard a long time ago that's helpful is the idea of a sponge. Imagine that you have a sponge, and let's make it a black sponge, and you don't really know what kind of liquid is in it until what? What do you have to do? Squeeze it, right? And you squeeze it, and whatever comes out tells you what was inside. We can think of trials as stirring up the mud of the water that's on the bottom in the clear water. We can think of trials and the difficulties that God brings into our life as the pressure that squeezes out the liquid in a sponge, and again, how often we think, I am a great Christian. I often think, what a, what, well, maybe not often. I don't want to get myself in too much trouble. But I do think sometimes, what a, what a great husband I am. How Trish must be blessed in this life. How she must render praise to God daily for the husband that he's provided for her to care for her and shepherd her and love her in life. Uh, and that is until something crosses me or something doesn't go my way or my expectations aren't met. And I behave with frustration and irritation, uh, whining, complaining, that I respond even sometimes with forms of anger. Why? Because my, my perceived wants were not being met. Things weren't going my way. You know, you think that you have this ideal of I'm going to come home, there's going to be peace and harmony, scented candles, dinner on the stove, you know, light music in the background, and it's anything but that. It's chaos and disorder. Because that's just how life goes. How do you respond to those things? Now that's a rather light and trite example. But think about how you react when you're treated unjustly. Somebody crosses you. Your plans are not only deterred, but they're canceled altogether. How do you react? Well, how you react exposes where you are in your Christian walk. And where your heart is, at least in that very moment. For a believer, the mud that rises to the top, the sin that pours out in our responses, should be then a means of humbling us with a great consideration of the iniquity and the sin that still resides in our heart. We should see that and rather than trying to explain it away or lessen it, understand that God has provided us with an opportunity to think very low about ourselves and very much about the grace that's offered to us in Christ. We should be humbled by it. That is a believing response. We respond so badly and so poorly sometimes that it should shame us before Christ and lead us freshly to repentance. Freshly to a reminder that we are in need of a Savior every day. Every day. It reminds us then of the wonder of grace. It should do that anyway. However, it must also be mentioned that these trials have a way also of proving the reality. And I want to make this at least as a footnote. For a believer, these, this squeezing of the sponge, these trials that come into our life, uh, should be, again, a, a means of humbling. But sometimes uh, it could be for a person a means of showing that there's either the reality or the non-reality of faith. These this humbling in the life of Israel, according to Hebrews chapter 3, was in fact a means of displaying that really what they had was not a heart of faith, but a heart of unbelief. 
always grumbling and complaining against the providences of God. Their needs not being met. Give us meat. Give us water. No, we can't go into the land. We're afraid. God won't be our warrior and our king. And he says in Matthew 13 as well that sometimes these trials can come, whether it be a a cost to pay for the testimony of faith in Christ, whether it be the allure of riches and the pleasures of this world, to cause one to fall away from their commitment to Christ. And so the trials then can have that kind of effect as well. But for believers and for us, what I would emphasize is this, that God uses these things to humble us and to test us, and we need to understand that's God's purpose in it. And say, what is, what is God revealing about my heart at any given moment through the difficulties and the things that I struggle with? And sometimes the very trial itself is not merely the event, but it's the duration of an event, that it goes on and on and on. Sometimes God has to suffer long with us in order to expose the reality of what is in our hearts. Now, of course, Jesus was the perfect example. We want to leave this passage without mentioning that because he experienced these trials as the perfect son of God in the temptations that are recorded for us in the synoptics of him being in the wilderness and quoting even this passage that we read that when Satan tempted him to distrust God, he said, no, I won't turn these breads into stone, but I'll live on every mouth that proceeds or every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. No, I will not test God and put him to the and put him to the test by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple to see if he will save me. No, I will worship God alone. So he's our example. Let me give another here and I'm going to have to mention these quickly. Another reason, so one reason is this, that God brings trials into our life to humble us and to test us, to reveal what is actually in our hearts. Uh, Another thing God could be doing through trials is preparing us for future ministry. Preparing us for future ministry. And again, I'm just going to have to mention this briefly, but the greatest example or the classic example of that would be who comes to your mind? You ready? Joseph. Joseph, Joseph, right? Joseph, yes. Joseph in Genesis is a classic example of God using trials to prepare someone for a future ministry. Remember in his early years, God gave to Joseph dreams. And in these dreams, God revealed that his future plan for Joseph was to exalt him even above his brothers, even above his father, to bring him to a place of prominence, even saying that one day they would bow down to him. And then he did something, uh, probably rather foolish, and that was he told them all about it. He went and shared these dreams with them. And, and while there may be a part of that that's not wrong, it, it may also indicate, and I tend to think that it does, a certain level of pride and immaturity on Joseph's part. He wasn't yet ready for the honor that God would later bestow on him in life. He wasn't yet at the place of maturity to receive the blessing that God had intended for him. In other words, God had great things planned for Joseph. He had a way for Joseph to serve in which Joseph would receive much honor and power. But he also had to prepare Joseph and make him ready to receive that honor. And how did he do that? He did it through trials, through family struggles, rejected by his brothers, thrown into a pit... He did it through removing him from things that are familiar, from his home, being slowed, uh, sold into slavery by his own brothers to be taken to the land of Egypt. He did it by causing Joseph to be unjustly accused and condemned when Potiphar's wife wrongly accused him of making sexual advances that, in fact, he was innocent of. And yet he suffered the consequence of it and was thrown into a prison that was not a pleasant place to be. He, he suffered the trial of being forgotten by those whom he had helped, whom he had trusted to do him a favor in return, whom he had trusted to do good when the baker and the cupbearer left prison and then they forgot Joseph. And of course, one of them was put to death. But the cupbearer himself, for a long period of time, forgetting Joseph, forgetting the promise that he had made to him, forgetting for all of that time, the good that had been done to him while Joseph continued to waste away in this jail, this uncomfortable jail. Now, at the end of all of that, God did in his own timing and in his own way 
bring about the promise that he had given to Joseph in the form of a dream earlier in his life. But at this time, Joseph was ready to receive that. He was a man who had been greatly, greatly humbled. He had suffered much in life. He had suffered much heartache, much disappointment, much confusion. He experienced abandonment, injustice. And yet the point of all of that was that God was shaping him to be the kind of man that he could be so that at the end, when he would have this power, when he would have this honor, when he would be in a position actually to execute great revenge on his brothers, he instead executed great mercy. And he says, am I in the place of God? God brought these things about. Why? To keep these many people alive. To do good to his own family. We can only wonder how Joseph would have behaved if he had not experienced all of those trials and seen God's faithful hand through them all. God may be doing the same to some of you. He may be bringing you through great humbling periods in your life only because he's preparing you for something good later. Some kind of blessing that is out of sight right now because you couldn't yet handle it. But also in this same vein, God may not be preparing you for that. He may simply be teaching you to find the comforts that are present in the gospel for this reason. So that you can comfort others. So that you can comfort others. The ministry that God might be preparing you for isn't for a place of great honor. But rather simply for a place of great service and extending compassion and tenderness to the hurting. By letting you suffer the same hurt. This, of course, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and of the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that, here's the purpose, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. That's a little less glorious than rising up to second in command over all of Egypt. Or being blessed with some extensive ministry or notoriety in this world. But it is a ministry just the same. Sometimes God may have you go through loss. We just learned that uh, Katie lost her baby through a miscarriage. We prayed for her this morning. Some have experienced that. Some have experienced stillbirth on the way to the hospital losing the life of the child. That happened in our family. To take a healthy child only days before then to go to the hospital and deliver a child without life. Fully formed child. Some experience loss of jobs. Some experience loss of their wealth and investments that they've made. There's all kinds of things that are experienced. Sometimes people experience the kind of suffering that in this case comes about from righteousness. A kind of endurance that they are, that they are forced to find as they take their rest and their comfort in the gospel. And sometimes God may have that ordained for some individuals for the mere purpose of that he's going to bring others in their life whom they can strengthen, whom they can encourage, whom they can instruct, whom they can teach. There is a particular kind of tenderness and understanding that someone who has experienced the same trial can give. Now God's truth is always God's truth and the truth that should sustain all of us, and we should be able to share that with anyone. But there is something particularly unique that someone who's experienced the same trial and walked that same road can extend to someone else. It's a level of understanding, a level of compassion, a level of tenderness that maybe someone who hasn't yet experienced that can't understand. And that's why sometimes that's evident when we give sort of trite encouragements. Well, trust God. He's sovereign. Those things are true. But one who's walked that lonely road and that difficult road with God has learned to trust Him in times of doubt and discouragement is uniquely enabled, uniquely enabled to come alongside someone else in a similar situation and give them the kind of comfort that God wants to extend to them. So sometimes trials are merely for that reason, to teach us a maturity in faith that we could take those lessons and extend them to someone else. I'm going to mention two more And again, rather quickly. Another reason God could bring us in trials sometimes is to keep us from sin. To keep us from sin. Have you ever thought about that? I'm going to give you just two passages briefly. One is in Psalm 119. And the psalmist says this. 
uh, in verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. He says later in verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And then he says, Later after that, he says in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so the psalmist is essentially saying, in verse, back to verse 67, that there was a tendency for spiritual waywardness in his heart that affliction was the remedy by God to pull him back onto a path of righteousness, to preserve him in the truth, to preserve him in obedience. I mean, the indication is that without that affliction, his heart would have strayed. His heart would have wandered. It would have gone down unrighteous and unhealthy paths. As he often does, Spurgeon captures this verse well. He says this, Often our trials act as a thorn hedge to keep us in the good pasture, but our prosperity is a gap through which we go astray. If any of us remember a time in which we had no trouble, we also probably recollect that then grace was low and temptation was strong. It may be that some believer cries, Oh, that it were with me as in the summer days before I was afflicted. Such a sigh is most unwise and arises from a carnal love of ease. The spiritual man who prizes growth and grace will bless God that those dangerous days are over and that if the weather be more stormy, it is also more healthy. Another along the same line says this, Though the children of God are truly the children of wisdom, yet being renewed only in part, they are not altogether free from those follies that call for this rod to beat them out. And sometimes have such a bundle of follies as require a bundle of rods to be spent upon it, many and manifold afflictions. Sometimes trials are the rod of God to beat out of us foolishness, to keep us from sin, to keep us, in fact, from the ease and the abundance that would provide for us, because he knows all things, an opportunity rather to forget him and to go on again in a path of unrighteousness. And so God humbles us and he keeps us low so that he might keep us faithful and he might keep us obedient to his word. And sometimes, because some of us have more stubborn hearts than others, those blows of affliction and the blows of the trials need to be even more severe and long-lasting until we learn this obedience that he's seeking in our life. But in fact, it doesn't even mean always that there's some deep-rooted rebellion Again, God just just knows that there is the potential for sin that he wants to keep us from. And we have to trust him for that. The greatest example there, of course, is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Just mention it briefly. He says in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul prayed against it. Or prayed to the Lord three times. The Lord said no three times. And said my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. And Paul said most gladly therefore. I will rather boast about my weakness. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Let me tell you that is spiritual maturity. That is spiritual maturity. That's where few of us are. But where we want to be. And what we should be seeking. That as God brings us low. As he exposes our weakness. That we would, in fact, not only yield to it, but bless him for it. Bless him for it. Because in our weakness, we know something far greater and something far more desirable. And that is the strength that he supplies inwardly to our soul. Now, it's no different to us. God at times may have us suffer, experience disappointment for no other reason that he's keeping us from sin. That would otherwise prove to be a hindrance to his work in our soul and our service to him in the kingdom. And you see, you can only, you and I and any of us can only have the kind of joy that James was talking about in trial and the kind of attitude here that Paul displays when our lives are completely yielded to the will of Christ. You see, if we are constantly just wanting our own plans, then we're never going to reach this. This is the expression of spiritual maturity that says, my greatest goal in life is to know Christ. If Christ is going to lead me to the knowledge of him through abundance, then I will praise him for abundance. 
If God will lead me to the knowledge of him through affliction, then I will praise him in affliction. In every way, my desire is to know him and to be shaped and molded into his image. And so I bless him for whatever he does that brings that along in my life. That is the maturity of one who can truly say that I have exchanged my life for Christ. I've lost my life that I may find it, my life in him and him alone. Now, let me just mention a couple others here. And again, I know I keep saying this, but quickly. And this actually is quickly. There's, there's more here than I'm saying. Let me mention, one is to great, gain greater confidence and hope from God's nature. And here I would draw this from 1 John 1, 5, when he says, In him is light, and there is no darkness at all. There's no darkness in him. There's no sin. There's no weakness. There's no lack of wisdom. There's no ignorance. There's no, nothing lacking in the perfection of God's nature. And this, in part, is what Job came to realize. And it's a mark of blessing and spiritual maturity when we realize that there are simply a great many things that we cannot understand. God's providences to us are so often strange. We simply cannot understand them. They leave us bewildered. Bewildered. I think all of us would say that that's a, a large part of God's providences in our lives we simply have no explanation for. We, in our own humanness, could think of maybe ten other ways that this could have worked out or gone the way that I expected it and all of the reasons of why it should. And it goes in an opposite direction. It goes very differently than what we had planned. Sometimes trials are used by God to wean us off from our own understanding to look at the perfection of his nature and to trust him. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, there are, there are things that belong only to the Lord, but we're responsible for only for what God has revealed to us and to be obedient to them, but the rest we leave into his inscrutable wisdom and the wonder of his plan so that we can rest comfortably and securely there. In him there is no darkness at all. There are no imperfections, no lack of goodness, no lack of wisdom, no lack of love, no weakness, no limit in power, no limit in knowledge or understanding. He declares the end from the beginning. And sometimes he uses trials, inexplicable trials, to perfect our faith and our understanding in his own perfections and glory. I can remember, have I shared this? I don't know. I guess stop me if I have uh, but it was about a little over a year ago that it was this verse that just exploded in my own heart. A very, I mean, obviously I still remember it and repeat it often. Uh, and I'm sure you have these, these experiences too, I hope, in your own life. Uh, but this verse particularly is one that God just brought crashing down on me. I was, uh, I was in this very sanctuary praying and just, I mean, complaining. I was complaining. I was just complaining. <laughs> I was complaining. And I was complaining with such fervor and with such passion and with such emotion to God over these things that were so deeply troubling and frustrating to me that I actually, at the end, I, I, I said something along the lines like, you know, please forgive me if that was irreverent. I mean, I wasn't even sure if I was within the bounds there and I, and I was very conscious of the fact that I needed forgiveness. But in the, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that crying out to God, this verse just came crashing down to me. It was just like the Spirit of God just impressed it upon my mind. In Him is light, and there is no darkness at all. And immediately how that impacted me in my own affections was this. How dare I complain against God as though there could be fault in Him? How dare I somehow wonder at His wisdom rather than delighting in it? How dare I accuse God of any lack of goodness in my life? And then there was a second thing that happened in that moment that as I was in this very room, as I was pacing, I think, up and down, and I look at the cross, and then I was just brought to a place of complete repentance. And the whole rest of my time in prayer was asking God for forgiveness. Forgiveness of my arrogance. Forgiveness of my sin. How could we ever question God or be displeased with Him or His providences in our life in light of the cross? We who know him understand full well that we deserve condemnation. That our sin brings rightly the justice of God and we should be condemned eternally. And there stands an empty cross where his son suffered in our place 
where God in perfect goodness, perfect love, and perfect wisdom provided for salvation. How could we ever accuse that God of being anything less than good in his providences in our life, even the difficult ones? And, and so that verse just really came crashing, and it came crashing down in the context of a trial, in the context of difficulty, in the context of perplexity, of discouragement. In him is light and there is no darkness at all. And I can say, at least in my own walk with him, he used that to increase my worship in a way that um, was monumental. My worship of him, my, my delight in his perfections, in his beauty as God, in his glory and wonders simply for who he is and how glad it is to trust him. And so sometimes God uses trials to that end. Lastly, and along that line then, as we come into the table... God uses trials to draw us to meditate much upon Christ, the cross, and heaven. It makes us long for heaven. It weans us from loves, loves of this world to really long to be with him. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, Jesus said he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So trials have a way of purifying our hope in heaven, our longing to be with Christ, our longing to be free from sin, both within us and outside of us. The sin that we daily deal with that's in our own hearts and the sin we daily deal with from those who are outside us who sin against us. All of that we want to be free from to the perfect worship of Christ. One more quote here from an old author and then this is what will lead us into the table. And here he's speaking of the godly man who trusts and experiences God's sanctifying work through faith. He says this, He rises above all that is subject to change, cast his anchor within the veil. That in which he rejoices is still a matter of joy, unmovable and unalterable. Although this is the same, or rather, in the psalmist's words, though the earth were removed and the greatest mountains cast into the sea, yet will not we fear. In our language, we will not fear. Psalm 46.2 when we shall receive that rich and pure and abiding inheritance, that salvation which shall be revealed in the last time, and when time itself shall cease to be, then there shall be no more reckoning of our joys by days and hours, but they shall run parallel with eternity. And then all our love that is now scattered and parceled out among the vanities among which we are here shall be united and gathered into one and fixed upon God and the soul filled with the delight of His presence." Trials have a way of making us long to be with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. To be freed from the difficulties here and to be purified in our hope of heaven. And it is that heaven that we remember in the table. So let us take a few moments now. Prepare our hearts as the men come forward to remember the Lord and His mercy to us through His own sacrifice and promises in the table. So take a few moments as they pass it out. Kathleen will play and then we'll take the table together.